Now, as we said, this is going to be kind of a chill episode, and we are thinking, what's a what's a chill topic we could do that still sort of fills our mandate of being a culture and politics podcast <laughs> in which we, we talk about specific things? Well, Luke came up with the brilliant idea that why not talk about some of our favorite things? Patrons will be familiar with those episodes that we did, those mini episodes about essential paragraphs, and we decided to apply that concept to just cultural artifacts as a whole. This is a grab bag of stuff that are, are we all have a personal canon of favorite things you know the elite of the elite and we're going to be talking about some of those today uh will they be political um everything is political <laughs> i like how you uh, you explained our whole like rationale for doing this episode and then you use the phrase fulfilling our mandate like we're, we're the podcaster equivalent of landlords like just trying to figure out what is what might strictly be allowed uh, as per the letter of the law and, you know, flying as close to the sun as possible with it? Well, unlike my own landlords, I respect the contract that we've made with our listeners and I, <laughs> I seek to fulfill it. So we're each going to bring uh, three things to the table. And I'd like to start with you, Luke. What's one of your favorite things? What It's like show and tell, you know? Yeah, it's very much show and tell. I mean, uh, the episode is called These Are a Few of Our Favorite Things. And so, you know, these aren't all of our favorite things. This isn't exactly a best of. This is really just uh, an excuse, I think, for Will and I to uh, not talk about things that we hate or find politically wanting or culturally annoying for a change and just talk about a few things uh, that we actually like. I don't really know how to transition out of a conversation about Screw Magazine, Times Square, and The Naked Cowboy. But what I brought was a little book you might have heard of called War and Peace by a little-known writer by the name of Count Leo Tolstoy. Well, I won't pretend I've read it, <laughs> uh, but I have heard of it. So, I mean, as many of you will know, uh, this was a book that I read, I guess, during COVID uh, in its entirety. It had a, a profound impact on me, so much so that, uh, I mean, I said I'm podcast monogamous. I mean, at one point, I would like to uh, record some kind of short-run podcast just about War and Peace because because it gave me so you, much to think you about. You floozy, you harpy. <laughs> <laughs> how could you, how could you betray me like that? <laughs> I'm the only I'm the only one who's allowed to see other podcasts. <laughs> But so in trying to talk about War and Peace, I mean, you know, it's impossible, obviously, to cover the breadth of this book in one discussion. So what I thought is that I'd bring to the table uh, a particularly memorable scene. And of course, the book has many memorable scenes, and it was hard to know which one to bring. But the scene that I've chosen to bring, and I want to read a passage in a moment, is the famous scene featuring Natasha Rostov's dance. Now, if you haven't read the book, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But basically, uh, in this scene, the Rostovs, one of the two most major families in the book, have been out for the day uh, hunting. So they're out in the country. Much of the book is set in either Moscow or St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg representing kind of the more modern Russia, the Russia that the aristocrats and the kind of uh, patrician class tend to hang out in. St. Petersburg is much more European. Moscow is sort of uh, the old capital. There's a wonderful passage much later in the book where Napoleon Napoleon arrives at Moscow during the 1812 invasion, and he's kind of looking at it at a distance, and he has a very orientalized impression of it. Napoleon, not just in the book, but in real uh, in real life, I'm sure Tolstoy's rendering of this is uh, is perfectly accurate. Napoleon, famously, when he went to Egypt, you know, saw himself as being in the lineage of you know these great conquerors, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, and so there was this kind of romanticism that he had about Moscow. It represented this kind of foreign and Asian and kind of orientalized thing. And to some extent, uh, it represented something at least adjacent to that for some of the Russian aristocrats at this time. 
time. A lot of them were much more comfortable in St. Petersburg. You have to remember at this time, the official language of the Russian court was French, not Russian. Um, this is a tension that is explored throughout the book. 